This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 513th episode of the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most distinguished producers in the history of independent film, with credits including 1994's Go Fish, 1995's Kids, 1998's Happiness, 1999's Boys Don't Cry, 2004's A Dirty Shame, 2014's Still Alice, and 2020's Zola, plus every feature film directed by Todd Haynes. Among them, 1991's Poison, 1995's Safe, 1998's Velvet Goldmine, 2002's Far From Heaven, 2007's I'm Not There, 2015's Carol, 2017's Wonderstruck, 2019's Dark Waters, and 2021's The Velvet Underground. The co-founder and co-partner with Pamela Koffler of Killer Films and the queen of new queer cinema, Christine Vachon. Vachon also produced two of 2023's most acclaimed films, either or both of which, with a Best Picture Oscar nomination, could bring her Oscar recognition for the first time in her career. A24's Past Lives, the feature directorial debut of Celine's song, which tells the story of a young Korean immigrant living in New York who winds up at a bar with her childhood sweetheart from Korea and her husband from the Big Apple. And another Haynes-directed film, Netflix's May-December, which is about an actress spending time with a woman she is set to play in a film who years earlier was the center of scandal for having a relationship with a much younger man. Vashon has been described by The New Yorker as the doyen of independent producers, by The Los Angeles Times as the ultimate independent producer, and by Screen Daily as one of the independent film world's most influential producers. Meanwhile, indie producer, sales agent, talent manager, and entertainment lawyer John Sloss has described her as the most effective producer of films that are both commercial and intelligent. Indie exec Ted Hope has said, in a business filled with narcissistic, deceitful misanthropes, Christine is the antidote, a truthful voice driven by a pure passion for film. And indie producer's representative John Pearson, the author of Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes, a guided tour across a decade of American independent cinema, has said, if there is a pure spirit of independent film alive in this country, it's Christine Vachon. Vachon, I should note, is herself the author of two wonderful books, 1998's Shooting to Kill and 2006's A Killer Life, the latter of which she co-wrote with Austin Bunn and was recently chosen by a blue-ribbon panel organized by The Hollywood Reporter as one of the 100 greatest film books of all time. In the former, though, she describes her work as follows. 
Quote, when I'm asked what producers do, I say, what don't they do? I develop scripts, I raise money, I put together budgets. I negotiate with stars willing to work for said generally meager budgets. I match directors with cinematographers, cinematographers with production designers, production designers with location managers. I make sure that a shoot is on schedule, on budget, on track. I hold hands, I stroke egos. I once had to bail an actor out of jail for gay bashing, no less, close quote. In short, no matter what, but Sean makes sure that a film gets across the finish line in its best possible form. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 61-year-old and I discussed her early ambition to become a director and why she shifted to producing after meeting Haynes. What caused the flurry of films in the early 1990s, a number of which she produced, that came to be described as new queer cinema? How she navigated challenges on the sets of films like Boys Don't Cry and Carol and turned controversy to her advantage with films like Poison, Kids, and Happiness. What she thinks about the evaporation of the mid-range budget movie and the rise of streamers. Why she keeps betting on first-time filmmakers like Song and collaborating with old friends like Haynes. Plus, much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Christine, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Great to see you. And uh, on this podcast, we begin truly at the beginning. Can you share with our listeners where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living? Uh, I was born and raised in New York City on 119th Street uh, and Riverside Drive um, uh, near Columbia University. And my father was a photographer, and he uh, worked for— the FSA, which is the um, the the uh, organization that was started in the 30s to document the Depression. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those black and white photographs that you equate with Walker Evans and yeah, Dorothea yeah. Lange, et cetera, those were the kinds of photographs he took. Oh. And they actually, Walker Evans actually taught him how to use a camera. Amazing. So he worked for Look Magazine when I was growing up. Um, until Look folded mm -hmm. and took a lot of photographs of luminaries like Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland and um, and John F. Kennedy, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, he died when I was 13. And my mother immigrated from France when she was in her early 20s, met my father, who was considerably older than she was, mm -hmm. and she earned a Ph.D. in, in you know, French literature wow. at Columbia and taught French when I was growing up, and and then uh, eventually got a job at the United Nations running their entire French language program. Wow. So. Now, would you, were they movie buffs? Were they taking you to movies as a kid, or what, what kind of movies were you consuming? Well, one of the things that's great about growing up in New York City is, you know, uh, I could walk to a movie theater. I could walk to several. I could walk to the Olympia mm -hmm. on 106th Street, which was one of those, like, former beautiful theaters that had been sliced up into, you know, four theaters, your feet stuck to the floor. <laughs> uh, you could hear the other movie, you know, in the theater next door. Um, but that was what we, you know, what we formally called, you know, B-movie houses or second-run houses. And uh, it was a dollar on Saturdays, and if we liked a movie, we would just— stay and watch it again. Mm 
down the street from there was the Thalia, which mm-hmm. I guess is still there. And, you know, my parents would take us often, my mother would take us to French movies, and they, you know, would take us to Chaplin films and uh, Marx Brothers and things like that. And sometimes we would wander in just because the title sounded interesting. And there was, you know, my best friend when I was um, 10, or 10 and 11 years old was a guy named Paul Selig. And we decided one day that we wanted to see a horror film. And, you know, this is when kids were very free range. So we were actually wandering around Times Square and we saw on, the, on a marquee the title Cries and Whispers. <laughs> and we thought, well, that sounds scary. Yeah, yeah. And it was, but not the way we thought it was going to be. Oh, so, wow. um, so that, uh, so that was really, you know, being able to kind of control our own movie destiny was was pretty great. So eventually, you go off to Brown. Yep. And I wondered at the time you were starting there, what did you think you might do with your life at that point? I mean, that's an interesting question because I think now, uh, young folks are really they. They really want to know, like, as they enter college, what the end result is going to be so that they can work right, towards it. Right. And I think I still had enough of a foot in the hippie, you know, the hippie 60s. Um, I went to Brown in the early 80s that I just, you know, I was kind of, let's see what happens. Now, there was Brown infamously or or famously had a <laughs> semiotics department, yes. which, you know, that's what Todd studied. It's what I studied. It's what a lot of, a lot of, it's where film production was located. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to pick up a camera and tell a story, you had to take a lot of semiotics classes first, which may have had a, you know. Boosted the participation. I don't know, it might have dampened the, <laughs> right. you know, the, it, kind of seemed to spit out a lot of us who were, you know, aggressively anti-narrative right. because it was destroying the world. But that's when I, and w- but when I got out of Brown and came back to New York City, that was a really interesting time in New York City, a really interesting time for, you know, for art, for film, for music. And one of the things that was interesting that I think doesn't get talked about that much is it was when MTV started. Right early 80s. And then suddenly there was a need for what were essentially short films, you know? Experimental exactly, sometimes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, so you mentioned Todd, and for anyone listening who is living under a rock, Todd is Todd Haynes, who I wonder if you can set this up a little bit, because you guys crossed paths at Brown, but you were, apparently it was sort of from afar, and he's yes. tell, told this story about seeing you at an omelet station. So I'll, <laughs> I don't know if you uh, care to share that and then how you reconnected once you're back in New York afterwards. Well, we, you know, I think Todd puts it well in the sense that, you know, he he started, he took a year off, so he started a year after me. So, and then I went to Paris for a year. And then I when I came back, he was going to do his junior. It was, so it was a lot of that. Yes. We knew a lot of people in common, and for the year that we were both on campus, I did work as a short-order cook um, and, you know, in one of the dining halls. And what he's talking about is, um, you know, uh, the students would often mix up their eggs and give them to me to scramble or make an omelet, um, and they were usually in a juice glass. And some students thought it would be funny to give me a— glass of orange juice instead. 
Um, yeah, there's nothing like those <laughs> privileged Ivy League kids <laughs> who think it's funny to torment right. somebody who has to actually work their yeah. way through college. Yeah. So, you know, I, I had to work really quick, so I just grabbed the glass, and of course, it the whole grill kind of, you know, blew up, oh, ruined everybody else's food. And I just was like, you know what? That's it. You ruined it for everybody. I'm shutting this down. <laughs> and the kid was like, you can't do that. And I was like, I can, and I did. <laughs> and then I just said to the rest of the line, close, sorry. <laughs> You know, his fault. Right. Anyway, so that's Todd was there for that. And I think he was a little like, wow. Don't mess with this lady. Yeah. Now, when you both have graduated, apparently you had sort of the coolest job uh, that a person could have in New York in terms of show up but don't work too hard. What was going on at, was it Cable View Magazine? It was Cable View Magazine. Yeah. Uh, We were proofreaders. And I worked there. Todd worked there. We had lots of, you know, it was basically the job, hire all your friends. Um, <laughs> you brought Todd there or was— I brought Todd okay. there, yes. He didn't He didn't stick it out as long as I did. But, you know, he came in and did a few shifts. Cause but the fact that you even were connected enough to bring him in at that point, you, had, you guys had reconnected after graduation? We had a lot of friends in common in New York. And I think, you know, it's—I it's, it's don't remember abs—I might be a little off on— mm-hmm. But um, we were starting to see each other a little socially, but not by ourselves. You know, we would in in groups. Yep. So I was kind of like anyone who wanted to work at Cableview could. And you know, our really our only responsibility, truly, was making sure that the Cableview magazine that went to Los Feliz was in the right time zone. That the one that went to Seattle was in that time zone. And I can't tell you how many times the boss would come in and be like, um, okay, so we just sent <laughs> 20,000 copies right. of the magazine, you know, to Los Angeles, and it's all in <laughs> Eastern time. And we'd be like, whoa, that sucks, man. Now, it's terrible. <laughs> but it was nice because I guess – were you able to do things with the time that you should have been spending on KLU? Were you starting to think about uh, work in film? Because I know not that long after you were uh, an assistant director on some projects, you were, it seems like you were heading down a path towards becoming a director. Well, I made a couple of short films, but honestly, what really happened was there started to be a little bit more production in New York. Because you, you have to remember in those days, New York was not really a production town. Um, There was, and in fact, some of the first jobs I had were on movies that would shoot in L.A. and then come to a day to, you know, so they could pretend they were in New York. Um, And, uh, but I, but when I, that said, at the same time, filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch and Spike Mm -hmm. Lee and a filmmaker I worked for, Bill Sherwood, were starting to make very personal narrative films that used, for lack of a better word, traditional production. They weren't traditional, but they were telling stories as opposed to a lot of what you would see at like the anthology or the Collective for Living Cinema, which were often aggressively anti-narrative movies. And so for uh, Bill Sherwood, we're talking, this is 86, you're an assistant director on a movie, parting glances about gay characters dealing with AIDS at a time. This is early days. Well, I was actually the assistant editor. Assistant editor, excuse me, yeah. And um, it was about characters dealing with AIDS, but it was also just, 
it was a story that kind of took place in a gay community in New York City without anybody coming out. So, um, and because I was the assistant editor, I got to sit and look at everything. And that was an extraordinary experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I really, what I did was I sunk up the dailies, you know, which is now not something anyone has to do. (laughs) Um, The fact that, you know, by this point, you and Todd have gotten to know each other a little bit more and you would, it would continue the next year. I know when uh, he did um, Superstar and you were, not producing, but a sound person, I think, on that one? I helped him with, well, I should back up a little bit and say, we had one friend in common that we were both pretty close with, and that was a a man named Barry Ellsworth. Yes. And Barry approached us both and said he wanted to start a production company, and he'd gotten, you know, he he came from money, um, and uh, he would, he wanted to know if this was something either of us were interested in. And we were, and we really talked about what we wanted to do. At this point, I'd had enough feature film experience as an assistant director. Uh, Ted Hope and I were often up for the same jobs because he was kind of going in that same direction. And I'd line produced, I'd location managed. I understood the mechanics of how a movie got made. So what we decided to do was start a company called Apparatus Mm -hmm. that would specifically make short films. And it kind of came out of this philosophy of there were grants around at that time, many more than there are now. And filmmakers, people would apply for a grant to make a film, but their knowledge of production was, was, was sparse. And often that those those were specifically the projects that would just kind of languish and never actually get finished. And we thought, how about we come on and actually be the engine that makes them? And it was kind of a great idea. Uh, at the same time, Todd was working on his film, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. And, you know, because we were we were getting closer. He, you know, I, I went to see it a few times when he was he was cutting it literally in his apartment on a steenback. So I watched a few versions of it and um and you know gave notes. I'm sure my notes were not anything that made <laughs> any giant difference. But I had also, besides production, I'd had my editing room experience. He was about to do the sound mix, and I had actually prepped movies for sound mixes. So I helped him prep the film for the sound mix. Got it. And this movie caused a big commotion when it finally was it sure screened. Did. Yeah, yeah. And still to this day cannot be openly uh, screened, although there are some oh. bootlegs out there, I think. But there's bootlegs <laughs> and and it is kind of like whack-a-mole on the um you know on the internet. Yes. It just comes up, somebody takes it down. <laughs> well one question that I want to bring up if it's okay, because it's gonna sort of preface this genre that you and Todd have both been lumped into forever. So I just wonder, were you always both, I guess I can ask about both of you, but were you guys out to each other in college, like to everyone? Like basically how was it, was, or is it just purely a coincidence that you ended up both working on a lot of films that had uh, LGBT subject matter uh, in common? Well, everybody in the 80s in college was bisexual. Everybody was. <laughs> That just was like, you know. <laughs> the thing to do. Now now they're all queer. Right, That's a right, whole other right. podcast. <laughs> um, so Todd was, Todd was openly gay and had, you know, I knew he had boyfriends. I actually at the time, I also had boyfriends. Okay. I didn't really 
I didn't really come out until quite a few years later. By quite a few years, I mean three or four. Sure. But that's a lot in, you know, somebody's sexuality yeah. time. Um, so, but also, you have to understand that as we were starting Apparatus and Superstar was gathering steam, because, you know, it went to the Sundance Film Festival when the Sundance Film Festival wasn't called the Right, Sundance. the U.S. Film Festival. Yeah, the right? U.S. Film Festival. Yeah. That should be like a Jeopardy. Yes. <laughs> Now, what was this? Well, also the fact that Poison, which we're going to come to, was the first year it was the Sundance Film Festival. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So anyway, um, but we were in the middle of the AIDS crisis. Right. So, you know, both of us were very active in ACT UP, and it was a big part of our lives was this um, these kind of these days juxtaposed against you're young, you're in New York, you're, you're you know, you're partying all night. And then people were just dying. I mean, it was just, but then you would go to act up and there'd be a sense of solidarity and community and and um, and a sense of truly righteous anger. It was just a crazy time, you know, but it was, uh, it also kind of forced everybody to have this, like, of course we were all queer, mm -hmm. you know, of course we were all gay, yeah. whether you were or you weren't. Right. So the first time that in terms of, your work that would have even been uh, a, a theme would have been Poison, which right. is 1991. And this is now the first time that you are producing for Todd. How did that, did something, did you guys just really click on Superstar or how, because there's now, I guess, something like four years between the releases of those two. What was going on in the interim? Well, we made a number of short films together. Uh, some were more successful than others. Um, one in particular still has sort of a cult following called He Was Once that Mary Hestand directed. So that experience of really being in the trenches with somebody, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of like, you know, we were really, it was we were very productive. After I saw Superstar, and I I did have a kind of epiphany of like, all right, I, I get... I'm starting to think I know what I want. And what I want is I want to make movies like that. Movies that are incredibly provocative um, and wholly original, but are entertaining. You know, I could never really brook those anti-narrative movies. And um, and uh, I I guess when I saw that, I thought, he's got that voice that I've kind of been looking for. I was starting to think I wanted to produce also for a lot of reasons. I think I didn't have the laser focus that a director has to have. And when I saw, to this day, when I see what Todd brings to the table when he directs, it's so, um, it's, it, you know, when I was in my semiotics classes at yeah. Brown, it's all, they're all like, the mise-en-scene, the mise-en-scene. <laughs> and you're like, uh-huh. And then... <laughs> Then you understand when you see a master, you understand that every single thing in the frame is about the story and about the, the character and about what the movie is trying to say. So all to say, I just thought, okay, Todd, I want to make your next movie. And maybe, maybe one of my contributions, I feel like there's three contributions I've made to Todd's career that are significant besides, you know, just being by his side. Yeah. 
One of them was he originally wanted Poison to be an hour long uh, because, you know, he just made a 40-minute movie, and it was like each story will be 20 minutes. And I was just getting a sense that there was a whole kind of business world out there and that, you know, I was seeing the fact that, like, maybe Stranger Than Paradise was already out. And, and I was like, you know what? Maybe it should be 90 minutes. Feature length, yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, and that's what it was. So that's one of the three. Yes. Oh, I got to get you for what are the other two, three, uh, two uh, of the three? The other one is, I think at a certain point, getting safe made was so hard. And we just kept, like, getting kicked to the curb. And it was just, it was a really hard movie to pitch. I'm going to stop um, you from going too far because I'm going to hammer it. But that's, that's number two. Yes. And what's number three? Number three is when we finished I'm Not There yes. and we were having the what do you want to do next uh, conversation. I was like, you know, I mean, we'd both been obsessed with HBO shows. And right. it's like, you know, maybe you want to think. Just like we don't have to stay there. Right. But maybe let's think about TV a little bit. Okay, so we'll come to that too. Yeah. But with Poison, three-part story and— I guess, as you mentioned, I think you had alluded to the fact that financing a first feature for for him right. might not have been easy for any you know to finance right. anybody's first feature. Um, so I wonder what that process was like on the level of just getting the money, but also how people were treating you at a time when there were not many female producers in the business. Well, you know, we he got a lot of grants off the strength of of Poison. I, I mean, of Superstar. Yep. And he also, we put together a limited partnership, and I worked with two people um, that were very critical to this. One of them uh, was Lauren Zelaznik, mm-hmm. who went on to run Bravo, et cetera. But she and I produced a few movies together, including kids. And um, she had a little bit more, I think, a little bit more business acumen and really was like, okay, this is this is a path to, you know, potentially attracting investors, et cetera. And we, you know, we got a few investors. Todd's grandfather invested. Um, so did some family and friends. And, you know, they did get their money back. Yeah. So that so limited partnerships were very popular back in those days. I don't know if they still exist. And then the other person was uh, a good friend of ours from Brown who uh, sadly did die of AIDS named Brian Greenbaum. And he also just helped kind of um, – Helped us sort of think of it as, helped me think of it as, like, this is a business proposal. Like, and it was sort of the beginning of that collision for me of art and commerce. Like, okay, there's a way that you can kind of figure this out. And if you do it right, you get to do what you want. Right. And in this case, the the kind of landmark thing, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, is that people had not necessarily appreciated or certainly had not capitalized on the fact that there might be a sufficient size, a sufficiently sized audience of people in the market to go see a gay themed film. Well, right? that's it exactly. I mean, and that when we went to, we took the movie to Sundance, and it won the grand jury prize. And as I should say, as an aside, I was a little like, "How hard can this be?" <laughs> and of course, I've never won it again, ever. And what have I brought? Like 35, 40 movies to Sundance? We got to have a conversation with uh, Eugene or I'm whoever. I'm a little like, <laughs> you know, anyway. And then what happened was, the I think the New York Times 
wrote an art, you know, an article, you know, Sundance Film Festival, Utah, blah, 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 blah. Grand Jury Prize, you know, the uh, gay-themed homosexual movie that's also gay, like, you know, <laughs> wrote something like that. Well, by the way, also, I think probably noting the gay theme because the best documentary winner that year was Paris is Burning. That's right. That's right. I forgot they were the same year. That's right. So that didn't help you guys with your uh, religious right. 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 Uh, so they, they went nuts because you'd gotten government funding. They went nuts because we got government funding. And it's catapulted the movie, which we had already uh, had a distribution agreement with Zeitgeist, right? It catapulted it into a whole other stratosphere. And first of all, it was incredible free advertising to the gay and lesbian audience. Yeah. But also to other people who are like, ooh, I want to see what's right. so disgusting. Right. Like, like, <laughs> you know, and that really, I thought, wow, you know, if you make a movie and you make it for the right price and all, and then maybe you don't need to break out of the gay audience. So was it, this, I guess, kind of comes back again to this idea of, you know, where people, your next few movies, we've got, Swoon, which is right. gay theme to the extent that there's a the Leopold and Loeb are gay guys who murder people. Murder a child. Right. Yes. Then we've got and that's 1992. Then we've got Go Fish in 1994. Right. Which is the the first kind of I guess lesbian movie that went big in the way right. that that did. Then we've got Stonewall in 1995. Um, the fact that you were as the, you know, these first few movies, both with and without, or, or with and apart from Todd, mm -hmm. are what come to be labeled by B. Ruby Rich, I guess, first as right. new queer cinema. Is that because you'd found that this is a model of an audience that other people are just not tapping into? So I'm going to gravitate towards those projects, or just kind of coincidental? I think it was a combination. I think that I started to see, like, wow, there is a built-in audience. And, you know, remember, at that time, it was very clear how to get to people. It was like there was a gay part of town. There were bars. There were, you know, it, there was a pride march that had, you know, like, when we made Hedwig, Hedwig had a float. Right. And, um, <laughs> uh, so all of those things, I just, like, you know, it was— it was very easy to find your audience. Um, I think it was also just what I thought was interesting. And it was opportunity. Like Tom Kalen found out about me because he and Todd were friends. And it was sort of like, you know, that thing you did for Todd, maybe you could do that thing for me too, right. you know. And then Go Fish literally came over the transom. And I asked Tom, because we'd become very close at that point too, to help me, you know, he was from Chicago. They were from Chicago. They were at the Art Institute. There was a lot of commonality. So we really worked together to bring that film to, you know, to to where it could go to Sunday. And then with Stonewall, your director, Nigel Finch, yeah. dies of AIDS in the middle of, of not, post. A post. Yeah. And you basically finished it. I finished it with the editor and with Nigel's business partner, um, Anthony Hall, which was really, that was really awful. That was just like... You know, I mean, I guess in retrospect, he got to make the movie and he was, you know, in in heaven making that film. And it's so, it's such a crazy movie when I see it now. It's just like, what were we thinking? <laughs> well, 
that same year as Stonewall, there's another movie, which I guess, I don't know if you went into it thinking you might run into some of the similar kind of uh, backlash as like with Poison, but we've got that year Kids, Mm -hmm. which is Larry Clark's directorial debut, Harmony Corinne's writing debut, and a movie that gets an NC-17 from the ratings board, but then you guys decide, I guess, to go out without a rating, which some theaters aren't going to put you in because of that and all of that. So all of which is just to ask, and I guess I have to also note, uh, believe it costs you guys $1.5 million, makes $20.4 million. But just as you look back on that one, were you surprised that there was so much backlash? And was the backlash actually, uh, were you finding along the way, you know, as Harvey Weinstein, who right. in that case was your partner, often later did, like, right. maybe this can actually help the movie? I mean, I always was of two minds because I, you know, I think Kids is a terrific movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a terrific movie in a way because of, like, a lot of accidents that kind of, like, having us as producers who were really inexperienced. It was me and Lawrence Lasnik did it together. Um, like, there's probably things that older, more experienced producers would just not have let happen on that set. <laughs> that said... I just want to be clear, like, that was never an unsafe set, right, and there right. was never, like, uh, and, you know, we were always asked, like, are the kids really doing drugs? And Larry, I think, would be like, yeah, because it's real. And it's like, but they weren't. <laughs> right. They weren't, you know? So, but I also think we kind of, we were trying to f- create an atmosphere that allowed the sort of, a, a little bit, that little bit of chaos right. that the movie kind of needed. You know, to feel authentic. So, Carrie Woods had a relationship with um, with Miramax. He, we sold it to them. We had tried to get Miramax to make it. And, you know, we had like five meetings with them. And they kept saying they were going to. And then, you know, crickets. Right. So, Carrie sold it to Miramax. I can't remember for how much. I kind of want to say five. I have it here as... Three point five. I think it was. You think it was more, more, actually? Yeah. But anyway, it, it, who knows? And then Miramax had just been sold to Disney, right? So they had to start a whole other company to distribute the film. Disney wanted nothing to do with this because of the NC seventeen. Yes. Yeah. So they for, they started a company called Shining Excalibur, and it was actually Eamon Bowles who distributed the film. Um, and I'm sure they absolutely leaned into the controversy and liked that. Didn't wouldn't necessarily, not that anyone was interested in what I or Lawrence Lasnik had to say, but they wouldn't necessarily want us to be there saying, "Oh no, the set, the set, you know, the set was really safe." Da 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 da. You know, they probably didn't mind that there was some sense that that you know it was it was cinema verite. Now, looking back, the third movie that year, which you referenced a little earlier, your third movie that year was Safe, which it had been four years since Poison for Time. Right, I guess. Part A, that long of a gap after a successful first feature, was that, what was that about? And then Part B, even after you guys had Julianne Moore on board, who was sort of becoming a name, and, and, you know, other pieces of the puzzle, including this script, which today is, the film's looked at as this classic, but it was a... It was a up and uphill climb, wasn't it? It was crazy. I mean, I think, well, two things. One is Todd did do 
in between Poison and Safe, he made a terrific short film called Dottie Gets Spanked, uh, which was made with money from an independent television, public television company called ITVS. And he also did a music video for Sonic Youth. So just, he was, was not right. completely inactive. Yeah. And Dottie was kind of a good uh, stepping stool because um, it was, we cast, you know, for the lack of a better word, like real actors, you know. Mm-hmm. He went through a, ca- a casting process with a real casting director that was very different from what he had done on Poison, which was much more like, let's put an ad in backstage <laughs> and see who shows up. And... uh you know, oh, and uh, th- this friend of ours would be really good in this part, right. et cetera. Um, so, you know, Dottie, we went through a whole process. We found a little boy, all of that. I think Safe, I think he was telling, he was doing something very, very different. And I think, you know, I remember sometimes we'd go and talk to executives, uh, and he would say, you know, the biggest influence on this movie is Chantel Ackerman's movie, um, Jean Dielman. And I would be like, oh, God. <laughs> and I think either the executive has absolutely no clue what he's talking about 90% right, of the time. Right. They'd be like, oh, yeah, so one of my favorites, you know, whatever. <laughs> or they'd be like, that three-and-a-half-hour-long movie where nothing happens. Not going to sell, yeah. So there was, you know, there was that. Um, we finally pieced together the budget. With some pre-sales, an in, uh, investment from John Hart, who I then went on to make Boys Don't Cry with, and some other titles. I think Todd's grandfather put some money in as well. So we sort of like cobbled it together. Yeah. Um, and Julianne, you know, she had had just kind of come out of the soaps. Uh, she had done um, the Altman movie, but it wasn't out yet. Shortcuts, right? Yeah. Shortcuts. And she did uh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Right. So... Meanwhile, even after you get the money and you get going, you run into the earthquake. You run into every everything that can happen. Uh, goes to Sundance and Cannes, not particularly well received. No, no. And the other thing I just want to say oh, yeah. is just the idea of attaching cast to get financing. Yeah. That was the that was new to me. Okay. That was the first like, oh, this is how we have to do it now. Okay. And I remember Julianne's manager, who is still her manager, Evelyn O'Neill, like, you know, yelling at me on the phone and saying, like, you know, she has to rap, rap, rap. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, who is this person? Right, and do right. I have to deal with these right. people now for the rest of my life who are, <laughs> right. like, yelling at me because, you know. And she, one of the things she said is, and and I assume she's pay or play. And I was like. Sure. I had no <laughs> idea what she was talking about. Well, you had many more dealings with her and Evelyn since absolutely, then. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, Killer Films is your production company. I believe right about that same time, 95, 96, right. is when this comes to fruition. How did you and your partner in that, Pamela Koffler, first meet? And why why did you decide to, to form this and call it Killer Films? Well, we— uh, Pam had worked as a line producer on uh, a number of our films. Kids, I Shot Andy Warhol, and um, and Stonewall. And when I came back from Los Angeles doing Safe, that's when we started, I think, those three movies. And that allowed us 
because it was three movies, one right after the other, and we stayed in the same production office, um, that allowed us to actually start, get a little security and start talking about development. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even though we didn't make Boys Don't Cry for like another six or seven years, it came through our doors at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing we started developing was a horror movie for Cindy Sherman, the artist, uh, to shoot, to, to to direct, called Office Killer. Mm -hmm. And that was when I kind of formally asked Pam if she would partner with me. Yeah. And she really took a chance, you know? It was kind of like she could make, you know, she could have been on a trajectory of, like, um, uh, becoming, like, a, a very well-paid line producer with real job security, you know? And um, that was never of great appeal to you. I'm a terrible line producer. <laughs> well, no. I don't even mean necessarily a lot, but like I could doing have been more in a, studio. I could have been an assistant director. Yeah. I, was, I was really good at that. Okay. But I would probably be dead of a heart attack by now. <laughs> but uh, but I was good at it. But, you know, we just, I guess we were just at the right age. You know, we were, uh, we were probably... Um, I was probably 30. She's a few years younger than me. And I think um, I think it felt like it's it's now or never. And it didn't feel so much like, all right, here we go. It felt more like we really like doing this. We like doing this together. Um, and um, let's try and make it work. So was there a mission statement from the beginning about this is what a killer film mm -mm. will be any kind of uh limitations or goals or anything like that i mean it, it sounds silly but it really is like we know what we like and you know pam and i are very different you know she's um she's not gay people who meet her might think she's more conservative than i am i think that's just you know maybe how she presents uh but i think she has a really she has extraordinary taste, and it's different from mine, and that's a good thing. So it means that we have a lot. We have a lot to talk about. Yeah, you know, when she loves a script and I don't love it, I always understand why she does, and vice versa. And what happens when you disagree? Oh, it's it's more like you know, if you really love this, let's do it. You know, um, we don't really disagree. We don't really disagree. We it's more like after so many years, it's kind of like like we figured out there's a certain kind of crazy I can handle <laughs> and a certain kind of crazy she can handle. Right. And it kind of just divides up, you know, where she'll be like, You gotta call that person. And I'm like, I got, I got it. it. <laughs> right. Or I'll be like, you know, I'm never speaking to him again. And she'll be like, I'm on top of it. Don't worry. Well, so after uh I guess you said I shot on Andy Warhol was before the partnership. Formally, yes. um, after the partnership, there there start to be a number of movies that I've got to ask you just about something crazy that happened. And by the way, I'll, I'll reiterate to listeners that they can get a lot more of this in your two great memoirs, one of which was just uh, chosen as one of the 100 greatest film books of all time. But let me just tee up, first of all, your next movie with Todd in 1998, back, I believe, with the good old Weinsteins was Velvet Goldmine, mm -hmm. um, kind of an epic about glam rock, the yep. whole scene there. 
but a very tumultuous one from what I understand for you guys. What, I would say what went, what went wrong there, but it sounds like very little went according to plan. Well, it did and it didn't. I mean, I think it was like almost, almost all of Todd's movies at that time were incredibly ambitious and, you know, the ambition was much bigger than, than our means. So with Velvet Goldmine, a lot went right. I mean, Ewan McGregor was arguably at the time, you know, the hottest young star. He was fresh off of train spotting, and he wanted to do it. Uh, Tony Collette had just done Muriel's Wedding, and she wanted to do it. Christian Bale, who nobody had heard of, had become actually uh, the first internet star. You know, he it was because I think of newsies and the internet was still a relatively new thing. This giant fan base kind of mobilized around him. And Johnny, Jonathan Rhys Myers was also the start of what everyone thought was going to be a meteoric rise. So we got this extraordinary cast. The tough part was, you know, being in a country we didn't really understand um, and, you know, being told a lot, oh, we don't do it that way. Or we were probably told, we don't do it that way. You know? <laughs> but you lose a million dollars right before it starts? You did, From yes. the budget? Like, yeah. this is the kind of stuff that people who, you know, oh, they may not wonder. Stuff. Yeah, that little thing. <laughs> but, like, that falls on the producer, right? You better recalibrate everything. But you have to recalibrate everything. But the only way you can do it, and I remember this really clearly, is Todd and I went out to dinner. And I was like, this is going to be really, really tough. And I need to know that you want to do it. Because we could stop right now. You don't have to make this movie. And if you think it's just going to be too hard or too, or just like not be the movie you want it to be, we can just all go home, you know, and it's done. And he was like, I do really want to do it. And then it was like, okay. And then the work wasn't so hard. It was tough decisions, but it wasn't like we were at, odds with each other. It was like, all right, we can have this or we can have that. You know, this is, we can have this kind of a solution or that kind of a solution. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But then you have to give up something. You know, it was like that. Okay, the next one also that year, Todd Slons' Happiness, which, okay, so I don't even know what uh, how to, what a logline would be for this movie. It's an eccentric movie from an eccentric filmmaker. Your movie goes to Cannes, director's Fortnite. People rave. Um, this is at that point with October Films, a division Correct. of Universal. No, it wasn't yet. Not yet a division. It, or it had just become just a division. Become. Okay, so among the even among the glowing write-ups, right? I regret to report because I believe that this was long before my time here. It was, was the Hollywood it Reporter. Was the Hollywood Reporter. Now what? <laughs> what happened that that made your life a bit complicated there? So a Hollywood reporter, reporter, 
who I didn't speak to for years afterwards, although <laughs> in all fairness, it probably wasn't really his fault. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he set out to do what this, you know. But Universal had just bought October or reasonably recently. And in the sort of wrap-up of the festival, this reporter mused, I wonder what Edgar Bronfman thinks about the fact that October Films, a subsidiary, uh, is about to release a movie that is a sympathetic portrayal of a pedophile. And that was like, boom! And then um, Bingham Ray reached out to us and said, I can't distribute the movie anymore, and you can't sell it to anybody else. He can't distribute it, not because he doesn't want to, but because he's getting it from Universal. Exactly. And um, so we ended up, Good Machine was handling the foreign sales. That was David Lindy, Ted Hopes, and James Seamus' company um, that then went on to essentially become Focus. They were like, all right, well, we're going to have to put together a distribution team to distribute it ourselves. And, you know, they they had somebody they were interested in working with. And I was feeling a little like, oh, I want to make sure, I want to protect Killer and I want to protect, I'm not saying they made a bad decision at all, but I only knew one person in distribution. And that person was the person who had kind of taken over I Shot Andy Warhol when I Shot Andy Warhol, you know, had been the Samuel Goldwyn company, you know, companies, and it ended up, I guess, at UA. And the guy who just inherited it was a great guy. And I really loved working with him, and it was Bob Bernie. Okay. And so I said to David and James and Ted, I want that guy. I want Bob Bernie. And Bob came on and um, and I think really, like, elevated the distribution as on a very limited budget, et cetera, et cetera, and I think really saved the film from obscurity. Next year is Boys Don't Cry, yeah. which I believe was originally called Take It Like a Man during the many years you were in development. It was called Take It Like a Man, and uh, I think um, Fine Line had bought Boy George's biography, autobiography, <laughs> That's which was called changed. Take It Like a Man. Okay. And I could tell they were never going to make that movie. And they called and they were like, you know, you were sending a cease and desist. And I was like, you're really going to make me change the title? <laughs> After like, all these years. You losers. Work. Right. <laughs> you know, and um, and then we had to change the title. And, of course, no one can imagine it now being called no, anything else. No. But Now, when you – so it was always Kimberly Pierce. She yes. was at uh, Columbia when you – still when you got involved with – She – so, you know, a good six or seven years before we made the movie – uh, Rose Trochet, who did Go Fish, uh, said to me, "Oh, in this story, remember this was pre-internet, or if it was if it was early internet." Yeah. So there were a couple of articles that had come out about Brandon Tina. Um, one was in Playboy of all things, and the Village Voice did one, and there was a lot of like, "Did you hear? Did you hear about? You know this." I don't even know if trans was in our vocabulary, you know, and they pretended that they were a boy and it was in the towns. It was almost Shakespearean in its sort of, in the sort of scope. And, and, and um, Rose said, you know, that story, well, there's this woman, Kim Pierce, and I've met her a couple of times and she's really smart. Can she come show you her student film? So she came and talked to us about the, story. 
And she didn't have her student film because it was at Duart and she owed like $2,000. <laughs> and I actually paid it. Oh, my gosh. I, paid, I know. And it's not like I had $2,000. <laughs> but – and we looked at it. Yeah. And um, it was it was fine. It was – it didn't necessarily say, oh, my God, this is an auteur who's – but her passion and ability to talk about what she wanted to do was – clear. We She cut together some of the short film, and we started showing it to people potentially as, um, you know, something that they would invest in to be made into a longer film, which was still something people did. Like proof then. of concept. Yeah. Yes. And I think people were a little tripped up by the lead performance because it wasn't completely convincing. And then the killers who hadn't even, they hadn't even gone to trial yet. They went to trial and Kim went to Nebraska and sat in on the trials, got to know more and more people in Brandon's life, and came back with a much richer take and script and started working with Andy Beenan. And anyway, the, the script we eventually shot was pretty far from the one that that she had brought to us, which we still liked enough to yeah. want to do. Now, you know, obviously this is almost 25-year-old ancient history right. with what I'm going to ask you. But so there were all, all these reports that she was, Kimberly was bucking heads with Hillary Swank or whatever. Here we are, though. The point is just actually, obviously, Hillary Swank wins this right. Actress Oscar. And I just had an episode a couple of weeks ago with Alexander Payne. And he had this thing, and he cited Boys Don't Cry as an example, where his he believes that that first film of many talented filmmakers – they're so passionate about it. It's like they're one thing that they're living yes. for that it's not a coincidence that draws a talented actress. Not that Hillary Swank was a huge star yet, but it draws right. top talent, often results in an Oscar like that one did. Right. I guess I just wonder, because you are so often have chosen to work with first-time filmmakers, is the thing that draws you to them, and to Kimberly in this case, that there is something different on that first project than when the next thing like what is it it's it's pretty much what what alexander said which is a first time filmmaker is usually telling that story they've been waiting their whole life to tell and it's almost like there's something about that that prevents cynicism and i think cynicism is so hard to avoid in this business cuz it's just like why wouldn't you be cynical? Yeah, yeah. But it also destroys any pleasure and ability to, I think, be truly creative. So in some ways, I need the, to do the first time filmmakers' movies as like my inoculation. Yes. You know? <laughs> well, so Boys Don't Cry, you've said that's the one that sort of really put killer films on the map. Then not that long after, you have One Hour Photo, Mark Romanek, right. which I think was your biggest success to that point commercially. Yes. And then we get to Far From Heaven, which I love all of Todd and your movies, but there I have a very special place for that one. And yet I was kind of amazed to learn that for, for you, it was, it, you know, there were some major frustrations, I guess, particularly towards the end. What What was, from your experience with Far From Heaven, why was that rocky? Um, well, okay, we made Far From Heaven literally the month after 9-11. So the actual sort of ramp up to starting to get, you know, to 
the the financing was difficult, but it wasn't the worst. We, you know, it it came together the way it should have. And then the world went berserk. Um, and uh, we lost some of our financing right a few days before 9-11. And I'd come back from the Toronto Film Festival and realized that the only way I could put the movie back together again was to go back to Toronto. And at that time, our U.S. partner was USA Films, which was formerly October Films. And so, it would become Focus. Who then became Focus, yeah. but this was Scott Greenstein. Okay. So there was that little vacation that between October and Focus right. that was USA Films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were cash-flowing the movie, but they were also threatening me that unless we fixed this financial hole that we suddenly had, they were going to stop. So I went to Toronto with like a gun to my head, and John Sloss and I, you know, uh, we were trying to nail down this French distributor. It's a long, you know, long, boring story. And then we wake up the next morning, and the towers are falling down. And um, it was insane, the crew was all like, we still want to shoot this movie. Like, everyone wanted to get back to normal. But part of what made the movie go berserk was the insurance business went insane. So who bonds a movie? An insurance company. So the 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 that kind of fear of disaster, the risk adversity. I mean, Julianne Moore was pregnant. And um, I found out and told, you know, told the uh, insurers after 9-11, and they went crazy and basically treated it as if she had leprosy and, you know, wanted some giant deductible. But everything was like that. And was it, though, they actually—and I don't can't imagine this has happened to you more often than just this once, but at the last week or so, was it, they literally— essentially took over the film? Yes, but I mean, just to tell, show you how crazy it was, the Bond rep said to me at one point, you have to prevent Dennis Quaid from going uh, back to Los Angeles for Thanksgiving. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, his family's in Thanksgiving, <laughs> in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't he go back? And she said, well, if there's another terrorist attack, he may not want to come back to New York. And I was like, okay, there are so many things wrong with yeah, that sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that just shows you where people's brains yeah. were. So I guess that Far From Heaven story shows you that uh, it's sort of, it's like with the, you read about the making of Casablanca, so that right. it's like everything that went wrong could have gone wrong and you still end up with a great movie. So uh, I don't know what the lesson there is. But after that, you've got Altman and the company, Robert Altman's The Company, right. 2003. You've got John Waters' Dirty Shame, 2004. And then we come to a, a situation where, again, I'm just kind of bringing up some of these so people can understand the type of shit that you have to deal with as a producer sometimes. And what are you supposed to do in the case of, in 2006, you have the movie Infamous, which unfortunately right. is the exact same time, basically uh, coming along at the same time as Bennett Miller's Capote. Yep. And how does that, what, what, what is your thought process in that situation? What do you, what do you, what can you control? What can't you control? I mean, at that point, that movie was set up, Infamous was set up with uh, Warner Independent, Mark Gill's company at the time. So all I could, you know, so we, we were financed, and it was really about, you know, 
I think, really who got there first. And we didn't get there first. That said, you know, the late Doug McGrath, who, you know, was a very close friend, I think Infamous is a terrific film. And when it came out and it didn't really get its due, I said to Doug, Doug, I am so sorry. I just, like, I am so sorry that you made this extraordinary movie and that it's not really going to get the acclaim it so deserves. And he said, are you kidding we got to make the movie. Like, the, we, the, uh, that other movie, you know, I know that's a drag, but I got to make my movie and I got to make it the way I wanted to. That's nice. So, you know, that's one way to look at there it. There you go. The year after that, back with Todd, I'm Not There, which I believe you have said, and understandably enough, was one of the harder oh, it, cells. Oh, fucking nightmare. <laughs> really well, was. let's just, just to establish, oh. five different time periods, seven different yeah. major actors. Yeah. Asking for $18 million in financing, yeah. right? What, what was the response from people when you took that to them? I mean, honestly, at that point, I, you know, my ignorance about cast and how it drove financing was long gone. Yeah. So, you know, Todd's stroke of genius really was casting Kate Blanchett. Um, and, um, but, you know, everybody, at that point, everybody wanted to be in a Todd Haynes movie. Yes. So the financing wasn't so difficult. I think what was more difficult was $18 million wasn't really enough, you know? And and I say that with a full understanding that, you know, movies have to be made for the market and that's and sometimes doesn't matter what you think, you know. Right, right. Sometimes a director will say to me, yeah, I think this really wants to be a $20 million movie. And I'm like, well, <laughs> well, Good luck, you know, yeah. the problem is it's— <laughs> The market says it should be 10. Right. So, but it was so ambitious and all those different time periods. Um, it just was. And, you know, we were shooting in unfamiliar territory. You know, that was, a you know, shooting in Canada with a Canadian crew. Um, and it was, it was really, really tough. And, but as you say, Kate Blanchett, so good in that. And a lot of people, it was just. Oh, uh, she was great. Uh, Heath Ledger yes. was amazing. Um, Christian Bale. I mean, it was a terrific cast. Sure. So the next time you and Todd worked together is what you referenced as your third of your three big uh, achievements with him. And I think that's undercounting, but nevertheless, this is Mildred Pierce, what you're doing for HBO back in 2011 before it became the cool thing to go and do, uh, you know, film people to go and do TV. This is you, Todd, Kate Winslet, and it, really did change things. Can you just talk about was it what was the what was the conversation that you were having internally and with your collaborators in terms of calculating whether or not it was actually a smart thing to go and do TV with somebody of the people of those caliber? Well, you know, Todd Todd and I had the TV discussion. And then like a couple weeks later he came back to me and he said, "I know what it should be." He said, "Have you read the book Mildred Pierce?" And I said, no, I, you know, I've seen them, of course, I've seen the movie. And he said, well, the book is actually not a film noir, you know, and it's very different from the movie. And there's something so inherently domestic about it. It's like, I think it should be in your living room. He said, read the book this weekend. So I started reading the book, which is actually pretty slim. And about midway through the weekend, Todd texted me or called me, I don't even know if text if we were texting back in those days, and said, um, 
So what do you think? And I said, it's great, but when does the murder happen? And he's like, ugh, there is no murder. That's the point. That's the whole point. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, okay. Because, of course, you know, the movie famously starts with the murder. Um, So then we attached. Now, at that time, of course, on the movies, we were attaching actors and et cetera, et cetera, as we just talked about on I'm Not There. Attaching actors in television wasn't really a thing. And we walked into HBO uh, and basically said, so here's all the scripts. They're all written because he had already written them with John Raymond. Right. Uh, So here's, you know, five or six hours of television. Kate Winslet is attached. And HBO was like, wait, 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 no, no, no. Mm -mm, That's not how we do things. And I was like, she's available in the spring. Yeah. So let us know if you want to do it or not. And um, now, of course, that's how we do it. Yeah. But – at the time, it was really— And was working in, in long-form TV any different to you than making just a long movie? No. And I have to say, HBO, were they were extraordinary partners. I mean, the culture there was so artist-friendly. And um, and it we did—we just cross-boarded it like a really long film. And, um, and it was, you know, it was a marathon— Especially, you know, for Todd and Kate, you know, who were, you know, because Kate was in like, you know, Kate had to miss one day of work because of food poisoning. And um, and we were like, nothing really to shoot. <laughs> nothing really to do. Okay. Well, amazing. And it really has made long form TV the, the place for yeah. a lot of people. But last two case studies before we get to this amazing 2023 of yours. Um, still Alice, 2014. You have said that that's the movie that put your daughter through college? I actually said that on a panel in Glasgow where I was not told there'd be any press. Okay, okay. So I was a little like, oh. (laughs) Well, but I mean, it's really interesting because I think about these movies that we've been talking about. They, many of them are now, you know, considered classics. Right. They seem to have not lost money. So how is it that still Alice is the one that you— sort of personally uh, reap the most out of? I mean, there's a lot of answers to that question. A lot of it has to do with how much ownership you can maintain over a movie and its revenue stream. And sometimes you give a, have to give away a lot in order to get it made. And, you know, our movies don't usually lose money. And they don't usually lose money because we have a real sense of, like, what the market can bear. Um, uh but with Still Alice, I think it was just the way it was put together. An honest company, Sony Pictures Classics, right. which is, you know, I mean, because as you said, uh, something you referenced, oh, kids made $20 million. Yeah, you think I ever saw any of that? Hardy, <laughs> Harvey, har, har. Harvey, Harvey. Yeah, Harvey, exactly. Yeah. Um, but um, when you work with, you know, good partners and uh, a movie really does perform, then that is what should happen. And you really, I mean, the the thread there is, I imagine you helped to bring Julianne Moore to these filmmakers who she would not necessarily have known. That's true. And um, and also I think we gave Julianne a comfort level that even though it was a low-budget movie, you know, it wasn't going to be a shit show. No, she only won an Oscar for it, so that was— Well, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think for a lot of actors, I feel like I a lot of them, they they're open to doing— 
crazy indie movies with first-time directors, what they don't want is they get there and the, they can't get onto the location or, or you know, the the holding area has no bathroom or any of those things that are just like, yeah. ah, yeah. you know, so – I get that. It worked out. Well, I'm glad you I'm glad you guys made made a few bucks there. Uh Carol, twenty fifteen, Todd and you again. Um, and again, it shows, I guess, what a business of relationships this is, right? Because this originates because you have a history with the some some folks who had a production company yes. who own the rights, or just how does how does that happen there? So Carol is distinctive because, for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is it's the first time Todd did a script he didn't write himself. And I am very good old friends with a woman named Elizabeth Carlson, who's married to a man named Steve Woolley, and they have a company called Number Nine. They used to run Palace Pictures. They made movies like The Crying Game. And Carol, a script of Carol had sort of been bouncing around for some time. Um, I remember it sort of coming across our desk a time or two, like for Rose. I think it might have come once for Kim Pierce. And whoever had those rights then, they lapsed. And Liz Carlson made it her. She was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them and I'm going to get this movie made. And I think she had to convince the um, estate because, you know, they'd seen the movie, seen, seen it like not get made for so long. Like, why are you different? But she did. And then it was just one of those kind of crazy things where um, she had a director attached. I had actually heard a rumor that that director was going to step down because of some family issues. Um, And we would speak every few weeks just about our lives, about our kids, whatever. You and the filmmaker. Me and Liz. Okay. Todd had a movie that he was trying to get into production but it just was like it kind of wasn't clicking into place. And Liz and I got on the phone and she said, All right, you were right. Like filmmakers step down. And it's just like, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. And I said, Yeah, you know, Todd's movie looks like it's not happening either. And then we really had this Eureka moment, and one of us said, Let's show it to Todd. It seems like it it was made for him, right? So we Gave it to him on a Friday, and he was committed on the Monday. Amazing, and such so, a you know, there are a lot of people who feel that's the the best of all the of the Todd uh, Christian collaborations. Well, wait till they see May September. Exactly. Well, that's right. May we're, December. We're, exactly. <laughs> okay, so just you know, there's so many others we could talk about. You win Sundance documentary, not the I did. for yes. Uh, yes. Dinah 2017. We've got. You and Todd again with Wonderstruck in 2017. You and Paul Schrader, First Reform 2017. You and Todd, Dark Waters 2019. Zola 2020. The Velvet Underground with Todd 2021. Great documentary. And here we are in 2023, another one of these years where you've got multiple amazing projects, which is hard hard enough to get one. But um, chronologically, I guess the first one that the public saw would have been Past Lives. Celine Song, um, who had been... And, and remains a very admired playwright but yes. for like a decade, but had never written or directed a feature film before. So how just again, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about earlier, but how does a first time filmmaker or aspiring first time filmmaker convince Christine Vachon to make time for them and their work? Well, this one actually, A24 was already on it. And uh, 
they reached out to us and asked us if we would sit down with her. Um, and during the pandemic, Pam had called a number of agents and said, just send me your best script. Like, it doesn't have to be available. I just want to read, like, really great scripts. And one of them was Past Lives. And I remember Pam saying, oh, boy, like, this one, I so wish we had a crack at this because it's really, really good. So when it turned out it did need a producer, uh, sitting down with Celine, really, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about do they know the story they want to tell? And if they do, everything else you can kind of like, I mean, she doesn't know how to read a call sheet. She can learn how to read a call right. sheet in five minutes. <laughs> like, see, there's the actors. Right. There's their times. Right. This is all the other shit you need, <laughs> you know? And then, oh, I get it. Okay. You know, that's easy. Um, understanding, like, how to talk to a DP, all of that is is much easier than really understanding your story. And she really did. I think part, you know, we wanted to make sure that she was surrounded by people who were value-added, who could really help her, you know, navigate, every, you know, all those potential, like, pitfalls. But, you know, she was wonderful with the actors. Um, and she, look, she told it beautifully. Oh, it's great. And I just so, don't know. You guys, to do a multi-language project largely abroad in South Korea. Well, only two weeks in South two Korea. Two weeks, partly abroad. And, yeah. and during COVID, right. it can never, it's never easy. Right. <laughs> but, um, okay, and then go to Cannes in May, and yep. there's May-December, yep. which uh, in this case, you are, and uh, Killer is producing with Natalie and Sophie yes. Moss, who I guess initially reached out to you guys. They, so Sammy wrote the script, and it was actually Jessica Elbaum okay. who saw it first. Okay. Jessica Elbaum works with Will Farrell at Gloria Sanchez, and she sent it to Natalie, potentially for Natalie to direct. And Natalie apparently said, you know, this is an amazing script, and I want to be Elizabeth, but I don't want to direct. Uh, let's send it to Todd Haynes. So we get a lot of stuff for Todd, and, you know, I tell him about everything, uh, and, you know, usually I'm like, look, you should make your own decision. This one's about X, Y, or Z. Do you want to read it? Do you want coverage? Whatever. Uh, Pam and I read this and we were both like, oh, <laughs> he's going to want to, he's going to want to talk about this. And I think the fact that Natalie was attached was obviously a big part of it because then he could start to see, and he immediately was like, I'm sending this to Julianne. Yes, yeah. So that was kind of, you know, that just was sort of perfect. And the, uh, I heard that you and Pam had a nickname for it. Oh, what? Uh, are you talking about pedophile bar? Yes. <laughs> See, I'm not supposed to say that. It, that was like a. Well, I mean, you know, hey, it's what it's about. Yeah. Uh, and and became a, a huge thing. I think the biggest sale out of Cannes this year. Uh, big deal. I mean, you know, our Cannes was sort of a comedy, too, because. Um, Julie was in the middle of shooting something and was only available for one night. And, you know, she really wanted to be there. We really wanted yeah. her there, but it meant we had to follow the Scorsese right. film. Which three and a half hours. Three and a half hours. <laughs> and it was pouring rain. I will admit I, I was at the second screen. You know, <laughs> so I was just like, I was like, oh my God, yeah, I can't not ideal. This. But, you know, it worked out. 
it worked out. They were all there. The screening people were, I think it was very different from Killers of the Flower. Yes. Yeah, it's good <laughs> counter-programming. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was really just, it was a great evening regardless. Last minute here, just sort of a rapid fire. What comes to your mind if we can? Why are you still based in New York rather than LA? I don't know how to drive. <laughs> Good reason. Do you still, you know, really consider a first-time filmmakers more like have has your desire to work with first-time filmmakers lessened as you've, you know, uh gathered um experience and and uh just time in the business? It hasn't really lessened. It's more it's more that I have to be practical and pragmatic about my company's resources and how to how to you know how to allot them basically. Are streamers net net good or bad for film? It's a complicated question because these days sometimes I ask my students like define a film, right? And they, I mean, sometimes I'm like these three and a half hour movies all these boys are making. Those are miniseries, right, you know? Right, right. So what, you know, is it just about a theatrical experience or is it about, to me, a movie is one of those, is a under two-hour experience that has a universal idea, you know, that, that you know, that may, that could be small in scope and scale, but there's something about it that touches everybody. What is the producer's equivalent of selling out? And why haven't you done it? I don't know if I haven't done it. <laughs> is there is there anything you look at, you know, some of these guys that are doing, let's say, Marvel movies or whatever, and they probably all, there's certain accoutrement or whatever, anything that's... I mean, if I got asked to do a Marvel movie under the right circumstances, I'd do it. You I don't would? know. Sure. I mean, if it was a great script yep. with a great director, why wouldn't I? You know, I they mean, should, look, I hope we, they're listening. we, um, look, we've worked with, you know, the, the whole, the whole idea of what's independent and what isn't. I mean, back in the day, it was easy. Right. You know, I did, um, I did a interview a million years ago with Larry Gordon. Yeah. Like they did a interview with both of us. I, before, I remember reading it. Yeah, for it, was this, kinda, yeah. it was kind of funny. And he had just done Waterworld. Yep. Um, and he was a little like, and you're what exactly? Like, no, he was great, but he was just a little like, it's what do you do? It's hard to process. And, um, and uh, but he said something really interesting. He said, I just thought an independent film was a movie you took to market. And I was like, kind of is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the lines have, is. have blurred, I guess. And now it's like, how is, you know, we work with all the studios. We work with every major financier, every major uh, you know, um, uh, foreign sales company, you know, we work with the banks, we work with, I mean, yeah, who when they do we not work with? And the whole thing, like Harvey-era Miramax being independent, as you said, it, they were part of Disney. Exactly. Um, last question. It is considered by any film aficionados to be a travesty that somehow, after all the things we have talked about, you have not yet received a nomination for an Oscar, meaning uh, one of your films being nominated right. for Best Picture. Does that, if we gave you truth serum, was what does that bother you? And what would one? You've got two great shots right. this year. What would it mean to get one? I mean, I'm not. It doesn't keep me up at night. Right. 
But, I mean, I'm not going to pretend I wouldn't love it. I mean, I think anybody who says that they wouldn't um, is, you know, is kidding themselves. Right. And, I mean, I've been lucky enough over the years to have gone on the trajectory a few times without being nominated. But, you know, being in the discussion, and I know, you know, when I talk to people sometimes and they're like, oh, another boring dinner or whatever, I'm just like— do you hear yourself? Like, it's so hard. You, It's hard to get the movie made. And then it's hard to make it well. And then the critics have to like it. The audience has to like it. And sometimes you just get one. And then it, people have to want to see it. And when all of those things line up and suddenly people are putting your movie on a list, I mean, that's fantastic. And it's often a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I mean, for me, it's maybe been three times, four times. That's it. Far From Heaven, Carol. Uh, Boys Don't Cry. Boys Don't Cry. Um, and I guess right now we You got passed, two. Yeah. So, you know, so I know not to be cynical about it and just to enjoy it as it comes. And I'm in my nice hotel and we're <laughs> junket is happening and the actors are here and it's great. Um, of course I would love it. But I don't – it's like – it's not why we do it. No, of course. And I also know at some point, you know, I think as I've said, I might just get the Irving Thalberg <laughs> and I'll gum my— Well, my, they're not mutually exclusive. That's if these true. guys can't get it together, that they then should do that, I'll but you just, keep going. I'll get wheeled out and <laughs> and uh, and the audience will be like, who's that again? Oh, my God. Well, so, oh, and you don't even get to be any more part of the no, ceremony. It's, their own <laughs> it's its own thing. But at least you get a statue. You get something, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're the best. Thank you so much for doing My this. pleasure. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.